Lesson 11 for December 9 through to 15, The Elect, ready for teaching on the 16th of December. Sabbath afternoon, December 9. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to your word in the book of Romans and we're going to be looking at chapters 9 and 10, very important things for us to consider. And as we do, we pray that your Holy Spirit will guide us. We thank you that in the past we've known you as the God who loves and cares for each one of us. And we thank you that as we open your word, that that caring still continues. Bless us each one now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our memory text this week is Romans chapter 11 and verse 1. I say then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid, for I also am an Israelite, of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. Let's read that again, Romans 11 verse 1. I say then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid, for I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. This week's lesson covers Romans chapter 10 and chapter 11, with a focus especially on chapter 11. It's important to read both chapters in their entirety in order to continue to follow Paul's line of thinking. These two chapters have been and remain the focal point of much discussion. One point, however, comes clearly through them all, and that is God's love for humanity and his great desire to see all humanity saved. There is no corporate rejection of anyone for salvation. Romans 10 makes it very clear that, as it says in verse 12, there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. All are sinners, and all need God's grace, as given to the world through Jesus Christ. This grace comes to all, not by nationality, not by birth, and not by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus, who died as the substitute for sinners everywhere. Roles may change, but the basic plan of salvation never does. Paul continues with this theme in chapter 11, as stated earlier, it's important to understand here that when Paul talks about election and calling, the issue isn't one of salvation. The issue is the role in God's plan for reaching the world. No one group has been rejected for salvation. That was never the issue. Instead, after the cross and after the introduction of the gospel to the Gentiles, particularly through Paul, the early movement of believers, both Jew and Gentile, took on the mantle of evangelising the world. Sunday, December 10, Christ and the Law Question. Read Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through to 4. Keeping in mind all that came before, what's the message here? How could we today be in danger of seeking to establish our own righteousness? Romans 10, beginning at verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. 
For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Legalism can come in many forms, some more subtle than others. Those who look to themselves, to their good deeds, to their diet, to how strictly they keep the Sabbath, to all the bad things they don't do, or to the good things that they have achieved, even with the best of intentions, are falling into the trap of legalism. Every moment of our lives, we must keep before us the holiness of God in contrast to our sinfulness. That's the surest way to protect ourselves from the kind of thinking that leads people into seeking their own righteousness, which is contrary to the righteousness of Christ. Romans chapter 10 verse 4 is an important text that catches the essence of Paul's entire message to the Romans. First, we need to know the context. Many Jews were going about to establish their own righteousness, as it said in verse 3 of chapter 10, and seeking the righteousness which is of the law in verse 5. But with the coming of the Messiah, the true way of righteousness was presented. Righteousness was offered to all who would fix their faith in Christ. He was the one to whom the ancient ceremonial system had pointed. Even if one includes in the definition of law here the Ten Commandments, it doesn't mean that the Ten Commandments were done away with. The moral law points out our sins, our faults, our shortcomings, and thus leads us to our need of a Saviour, our need of forgiveness, our need of righteousness, all of which are found only in Jesus. In this sense, Christ is the end of the law, in that the law leads us to him and to his righteousness. The Greek word for end here is teleos, T-E-L-O-E-S, which also can be translated as goal or purpose. Christ is the final purpose of the law, in that the law is to lead us to Jesus. To see this text as teaching that the Ten Commandments, or specifically the Fourth Commandment, what these folks really mean, are now nullified, is to draw a conclusion that goes against so much else of what Paul and the New Testament teach. And so to finish today, do you ever find yourself proud of how good you are, especially in contrast to others? Maybe you are better, but so what? Compare yourself to Christ and then think about how good you really are. Monday, December 11. The Election of Grace Question. Read Romans chapter 11, verses 1 through to 7. What common teaching does this passage deny clearly and irrevocably? Chapter 11 of Romans, verse 1. I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew, or 
Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself seven thousand men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so, then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And, if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. In the first part of his answer to the question, Hath God cast away his people? Paul points to a remnant, an election of grace, as proof that God has not cast away his people. Salvation is open for all who accept it, Jew and Gentile alike. It should be remembered that the early converts to Christianity were all Jews. For example, the group that were converted on the day of Pentecost. It took a special vision and miracle to convince Peter that the Gentiles had equal access to the grace of Christ, as you read in Acts 15 verses 7 through to 9. And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, You know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. And the gospel was to be carried to them as well. Question. Read Romans chapter 11, verses 7 through to 10. Is Paul saying that God purposely blinded to salvation the part of Israel's population that rejected Jesus? What's wrong with that idea? Romans 11, beginning at verse 7. What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded, just as it is written... God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they may not see, and ears that they should not hear, to this very day. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened, so that they do not see, and bow down their back always. In Romans 11, verses 8 through to 10, Paul quotes from the Old Testament, which the Jews accepted as authoritative. The passages that Paul cites represent God as giving to Israel a spirit of slumber, preventing their seeing and hearing. Does God blind people's eyes to prevent them from seeing light that would lead them to salvation? Never. These passages must be understood in the light of our explanation of Romans chapter 9. Paul is not talking of individual salvation, for God rejects no one group en masse for salvation. The issue here, as it has been all along, deals with the role that these people play in his work. And so to finish the day. What is so wrong with the idea that God has rejected en masse 
any group of people in terms of salvation. Why is that counter to the whole teaching of the gospel, which at the core shows that Christ died to save all human beings? How, for example, in the case of the Jews, has this idea led to tragic results? Tuesday, November 12, The Natural Branch Question. Read Romans chapter 11, verses 11 through to 15. What great hope does Paul present in this passage? Romans 11, beginning at verse 11. I say then, have they stumbled that they may fall? Certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, if their fall is riches for the world, and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh, and save some of them. For if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life? from the dead. In this passage we find two parallel expressions. One, their, that's the Israelites, fullness in verse 12, and two, the receiving of them, that's the Israelites, in verse 15. Paul envisioned the diminishing and the casting away to be only temporary and to be followed by fullness and reception. This is Paul's second answer to the question raised at the beginning of this chapter. Hath God cast away his people? What appears to be casting away, he says, is only a temporary situation. Question. Read Romans chapter 11, verses 16 through to 24. What is Paul saying to us here? Romans 11, beginning at Verse 16, For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and the fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said, because of unbelief they were broken off, and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God. On those who fell, severity, but toward you, goodness. If you continue in his goodness, otherwise you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, who are natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? 
Paul likens the faithful remnant of Israel to a noble olive tree, some of whose branches have been broken off, the unbelieving ones, an illustration he uses to prove that God hath not cast away his people in chapter 11 verse 2. The root and trunk are still there. Into this tree the believing Gentiles have been grafted but they are drawing their sap and vitality from the root and the trunk, which represent believing Israel. What happens to those who rejected Jesus could happen also to the believing Gentiles. The Bible teaches no doctrine of once saved, always saved. Just as salvation is freely offered, it freely can be rejected. Although we have to be careful of thinking that every time we fall we are out of salvation or that we aren't saved unless we are perfect, we need to avoid the opposite ditch as well. The idea that once God's grace covers us, there is nothing we can do, no choices we can make that will take the provision of salvation away from us. In the end, only those who continue in his goodness, as it said in verse 22, will be saved. No believer should boast of his or her own goodness or feel any superiority over his or her fellow human beings. Our salvation was not earned, it was a gift. Before the cross, before the standard of God's holiness, we are all equal. Sinners in need of divine grace. Sinners in need of a holiness that can be ours only through grace. We have nothing of ourselves to boast about. Our boasting should be only in Jesus and what he has done for us by coming into this world in human flesh, suffering our woes, dying for our sins, offering us a model for how we are to live and promising us the power to live that life. In it all, we are completely dependent upon him, for without him... We would have no hope beyond what this world itself offers. Wednesday, December 13... All Israel shall be saved. Question. Read Romans chapter 11, verses 25 through to 27. What great events is Paul predicting here? Romans 11, beginning at verse 25. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, as it is written, The Deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob, for this is the covenant with them, when I take away their sins. Christians have been discussing and debating Romans 11:25 through to 27 for centuries now. A few good points, however, are clear. For starters, The whole tenor here is that of God reaching out to the Jews. What Paul is saying comes in reply to the question raised at the beginning of the chapter. Hath God cast away his people? His answer, of course, is no. 
and his explanation is, one, that the blindness, that's the Greek word porosis or hardness, is only in part, and two, that it is only temporary until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. What does the fullness of the Gentiles mean? Many see this phrase as a way of expressing the fulfilment of the Gospel Commission, in which all the world hears the Gospel. The fullness of the Gentiles has come in when the Gospel has been preached everywhere. The faith of Israel, manifested in Christ, is universalized. The Gospel has been preached to all the world. The coming of Jesus is near. At this point, then, many Jews start coming to Jesus. Another difficult point is the meaning of all Israel shall be saved in verse 26. This must not be construed to mean that every Jew will, by some divine decree, have salvation in the end time. Nowhere do the scriptures preach universalism, either for the entire human race or for a particular segment. Paul was hoping to save some of them, as he said in chapter 11, verse 14. Some accepted the Messiah and some rejected him, as it is with all people groups. Commenting on Romans 11, Ellen G. White speaks of a time in the closing proclamation of the gospel when many of the Jews will by faith receive Christ as their Redeemer. The Acts of the Apostles, page 381. She also writes in Evangelism, page 578, There is a mighty work to be done in our world. The Lord has declared that the Gentiles shall be gathered in, and not the Gentiles only, but the Jews. There are among the Jews many who will be converted, and through whom we shall see the salvation of God go forth as a lamp that burneth. There are Jews everywhere, and to them the light of present truth is to be brought. There are among many who will come to the light, and who will proclaim the immutability of the law of God with wonderful power. And so to finish today, take some time to think about the Jewish roots of the Christian faith. How could a selective study of the Jewish religion help you to better understand your Christian faith? Thursday, December 14, The Salvation of Sinners Paul's love for his own people is clearly apparent in Romans chapter 11, verses 25 and 27. How hard it must have been for him to have some of his countrymen fight against him and against the truth of the gospel. And yet, amid it all, he still believed that many would see Jesus as the Messiah. Question Read Romans chapter 11, verses 28 to 36. How does Paul show God's love, not just for the Jews, but for all humanity? How does he express here the amazing and mysterious power of God's grace? Romans 11, beginning at verse 28. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. 
For, as you were once disobedient to God, yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience, even so these also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown you they also may obtain mercy. For God has committed them all to disobedience, that he might have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counsellor? Or who has first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him? For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory for ever. Amen. Through Romans 11:28 to 36, although a contrast is made between Jews and Gentiles, one point stands clear. God's mercy and love and grace are poured out upon sinners. From even before the foundation of the world, God's plan was to save humanity and to use other human beings, nations even, as instruments in his hands to fulfill his divine will. Question, carefully and prayerfully, read Romans 11.31. What important point should we take from this text about our witness, not just to Jews, but to all people with whom we come in contact? Romans 11.31 Even so, these also have now been disobedient, that, through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. No doubt, through the centuries, had the Christian church treated the Jews better, many more might have come to their Messiah. The great falling away in the early centuries after Christ and the extreme paganization of Christianity, including the rejection of the Seventh-day Sabbath in favour of Sunday, certainly didn't make it any easier on a Jew who might have been drawn to Jesus. How crucial, then, that all Christians, realising the mercy that has been given to them in Jesus, display that mercy to others. We cannot be Christians if we do not. See Matthew 18, verses 23 to 25. Matthew 18, beginning at verse 23. Therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. But, as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold, with his wife and children, and all that he had, and that payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants, who owed him a hundred denarii. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And he would not, but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So, when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved, and came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. 
Should you not also have compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry, and delivered him to the torturers until he could pay all that was due to him. So my heavenly Father also will do to you, if each of you, from his heart, does not forgive his brother his trespasses. So to finish today, is there someone to whom you need to show mercy who perhaps doesn't deserve it? Why not show this person that mercy, no matter how hard that might be to do? Isn't that what Jesus has done for us? Friday, December 15. From the book The Acts of the Apostles, page 376 and 377, we read, Notwithstanding Israel's failure as a nation, there remained among them a goodly remnant of such as should be saved. At the time of the Saviour's advent, there were faithful men and women who had received with gladness the message of John the Baptist, and had thus been led to study anew the prophecies concerning the Messiah. When the early Christian church was founded, it was composed of these faithful Jews who recognised Jesus of Nazareth as the one for whose advent they had been longing. And from page 381 of the same book. Among the Jews are some who, like Saul of Tarsus, are mighty in the Scriptures. And these will proclaim with wonderful power the immutability of the law of God. As his servants labour in faith for those who have long been neglected and despised, his salvation will be revealed. And from the same page, another paragraph, in the closing proclamation of the gospel, when special work is to be done for classes of people hitherto neglected, God expects his messengers to take particular interest in the Jewish people whom they find in all parts of the earth. As the Old Testament scriptures are blended with the new in an explanation of Jehovah's eternal purpose, this will be to many of the Jews as the dawn of a new creation, the resurrection of the soul. As they see the Christ of the gospel dispensation portrayed in the pages of the Old Testament scriptures and perceive how clearly the New Testament explains the Old, their slumbering faculties will be aroused and they will recognize Christ as the Saviour of the world. Many will, by faith, receive Christ as their Redeemer. End of quote. And that brings us to our three discussion questions for this week. One, as God's law, and especially the Sabbath, comes into sharp focus in the last days, is it not reasonable to think that the Jews, many of whom as serious about the Ten Commandments as Adventists are, will have a role in helping to clarify some issues before the world? After all, when it comes to Sabbath-keeping, Adventists, in contrast to the Jews, are the new kids on the block. Discuss this. Two, of all churches, why should the Adventist Church be the one most successful in reaching out to Jews? What can you or your local church do in seeking to reach Jews in your community? 3. What can we learn from the mistakes of many in ancient Israel? How can we avoid doing the same things today? 
Inside Story. Our mission story this week is the third part of From Cigarettes to Castles. And I think this is going to be the end of the story. Whenever I have difficulties in life, God reminds me of the first steps of faith, to pray and rely on Him. I'm now a small business owner. I sell toys and I have some bounce castles that are set up in various parks around the city of Venistria. Every client who comes to our business receives a free Seventh-day Adventist magazine filled with good health and spiritual information. The most popular days for people to go to the park are Saturday and Sunday. The Central City Park belongs to the city administration, so when my business does well, they receive a good percentage. But the challenge is that I don't work on Saturdays. In the beginning, we had some challenges with the city over that. They tried to force me to be there. But I was firm. Either I don't work on Saturday, or I don't work at all. They could see that I was firm, and they could see that we worked properly. They appreciate our work and know that we are a people of principle. Sometimes I visit the cemetery where my mum is buried. As I walk past the graves, I see the names of my friends buried there. I'm especially sad when I see three names, because when I became a Christian, I talked with these guys. I invited them to come to church and to follow the path that I had taken, but now their names are at the cemetery. The last time I was home, my wife was given the opportunity to see how horrendous my former life was. As we were walking, we saw some of my old friends, who are still alive, sitting on a bench. When one of my old friends saw me, he ran to me, fell on his knees and started crying, saying, I'm tired of the life I'm living. I told him that not long ago at that very spot I had told our friend, who was now in the grave, to go to church. And now I was telling him, go to church. But he wouldn't listen to me either. He said, I'm going to have the same fate as the guy in the grave. I pled with him. It's much easier to go to church than to the cemetery. Look at me now. Here are my wife and children. He looked at them. You can start a new life, I assured him. But he just turned back to his friends, back to drinking. He didn't have a family. He didn't have anything. He just spent every day looking for another bottle of booze. As we walked away, my wife whispered, Now I see what you used to be in the past. Yes, I whispered back, and I was the worst one of them all. This lesson has been read by Dr. Percy Harold in the studios of Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired. It is brought to you by the Sabbath School Department and through the services of Hope Channel. Remember, God is always faithful.